Well, we are in Luke chapter 3 now, and I, I just want to say before we begin, I want to thank Eric and um, Robert for their preaching um, while I was on vacation. Um, I, I listened and I loved and appreciated and was challenged and encouraged by their preaching of God's word from Luke, and, and I hope you have been too. Um, grateful for those brothers. Um, so as we come to Luke, uh, before we read the text, now I want to make a couple of observations that came as I studied, particularly the first few verses of, of this text this morning. Um, so it may take me a, a minute before we get to actually standing and reading it together, but but I think this is important for us to hear. You and I have come this morning to gather around and to sit under the Word of God, the Bible. That's, that's what we're here for. That's what we do. We've come to hear the voice of God speak to us through His Word. And I want to remind us that this is the most significant, life-transforming thing we can do as God's people. how can I make such a claim? Is it because I'm the preacher and I just want to make sure that I have job security so I, have, I make sure you know that the most important thing you can do is to come and hear the preaching of God's word? No, because I need to sit under this word. And I get the privilege of diving into it and, and it's speaking to me before I get to try to help it speak to you. Um, I need to hear and heed the word of God as much as you do. And I'm saying this, I'm saying that hearing the Word of God transcends everything because that's what Luke tells us and shows us in the first couple of verses. Look, listen to this. He starts saying this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Did you see it? Did you hear it? Luke lists the most significant leaders who impacted the lives of those who would first hear the preaching of John the baptizer. He lists them out. He lists secular powers and religious powers. The secular, secular powers, Tiberius Caesar, he was the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time. And then he lists four other Roman rulers representing the emperor in Israel, Pontius Pilate, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip II. Those two guys were sons of Herod the Great, who was ruling when Jesus was born. And then this other... Uh, tetrarch Lysanias. So he mentions these secular powers, and then he talks about these significant religious powers of the day, Annas and Caiaphas. They were high priests over Israel. Uh, Annas had served from AD 6 to 15, but he still had a tremendous influence, even as his son-in-law Caiaphas held the office at this time. And this, this word came to John at about, we think, AD 29. Now, these were the names that would have dominated the news 
in Israel in AD 29. They were the movers and shakers and the policymakers. And they were not good men. Sound familiar? <laughs> okay. But listen to what Luke goes on to say after listing all of those horrible leaders. He says that during their reign, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. During the reign and rule of those somebodies in high places, the word of God, who is the somebody in the highest place, came to a nobody named John in the no place of the wilderness. And so why does Luke tell us this? Why don't you tell us, preacher? Well, two reasons, I think. First, because he wants his friend Theophilus, to, for whom he's written this book, and us, he wants Theophilus and us to know for certain that the story of Jesus he's telling is not a religious story, but a real story. The birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus all happened in history. That's why he's so specific about when this took place. He wants anybody who reads it to know it was at this time when these people were in office. These are historical realities, not religious fantasies. And so, friends, we don't believe the story of Jesus just because it makes us feel better. We believe the story of Jesus because it's true. We come here on Sundays to reorient ourselves to what's real and true by listening to the story of Jesus in the 66 books of the Bible. I think that's one reason why Luke gave us all those weird details about those people. But there's another one, I think. Luke uses language that takes this thought a little bit further. He says, the word of God came to you, John. Now, you may just read right over that, but if you know your Old Testament or you're familiar with the Old, Te Old Testament prophets, you'll know that the word of God came to is the same language used in the Old Testament to describe how God spoke to his people through his, through his prophets. The word of the Lord came to Abraham. The Lord, word of the Lord came to Samuel, to Nathan, to Elijah, to Jeremiah. That phrase is used over and over and over again. So what Luke is saying is that John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And that means that what's happening in 29 AD is part of a larger story that's been going on since the beginning of time. It would be easy to think that this little story about John and Jesus took place during the larger story of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Lysanias, Annas, and Caiaphas. Caiaphas, but no. Those little guys and their little stories were all part of the story that God had been telling. And now John was here to announce that God was finally fulfilling the promise he made in Genesis 3.15. That God would send one of the offspring of Eve, a man, the second Adam, who would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse and corruption of the first Adam's sin 
who would come to make all things new, beginning with a new humanity that he would call his church, a people that he would make in his own image. That's the larger story of reality that God has been telling, and that's the good news that John has come to prepare the people to hear. The new and final chapter is about to open in this story. And where are Tiberius Caesar? Where's Pontius Pilate? Where's Herod Antipas, Herod Philip? Where's Licinius? Where's Annas and Caiaphas today? Where are their kingdoms? They're dust. But the kingdom and church of Jesus that John came to announce lives on. And here we are. This should be an encouragement to us. Pastor Kevin DeYoung recently said it this way. He said, there are presidents and parliaments and congress and institutions and universities and books and lots of other things. But that's not the main story going on in the universe, he says. What happens to the United States or what happens to Great Britain or what happens to any other nation or country or empire, the main thing going on is what happens to the church. The church of Jesus Christ is the only institution that Jesus himself promised he would build. He didn't promise to build any, anything else, any other institution. He promised to build the church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So why am I taking the time to emphasize these things? Because, friends, when we get anxious about what the movers and shakers and policymakers of our world are doing or not doing, we come here to be shaped by the news that is more relevant than the news that's broadcast on your favorite news channel or podcast. The good news about who Jesus is and what he's done and is doing for, in, and through his church, including us. So, Sunday matters. What we're doing here together, you and I, sitting under this word, this is what's real. We talk about, well, let's get out there and get in the real world. This is the real world. And so we have to come and remind ourselves of what he's up to. We have to hear the word of the Lord. Friends, the word of the Lord has come to us this morning. So let's stand and hear what he has to say to us from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 22. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of uh, Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, Make his path straight. 
Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, we ask that you would truly help us to hear your word this morning um, and give us the grace to repent and believe because of what we've heard. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, new year, new you, right? (laughs) How's it going so far? Good. New year, new you. Um, there is something about turning that page from, of the calendar from December to January that uh, stirs in most of us, many of us, this desire for change, this desire for newness, uh, for transformation. I know it happens to me, and I appreciate, actually, uh, a new fresh start every year. Um, we resolve to put off old habits and, and put on new ones. 
And um, this year is going to be different, we say. This year, I'm going to be different. And uh, in an election year, such as we have begun in 2024, um, an election year highlights our culture's desire for change and transformation, doesn't it? No matter which way we lean politically, whether, it's we, whether we lean toward making America great or building, better, building back better, um, we want to put people in power who will make things new, who will make things better, make things great. So here in the mid-2020s, we all have an innate sense that things are not the way they're supposed to be. We all, we all want things to be great. We all, things want to, we all want things to be better. But in the late 20s AD, John the Baptist came to confirm that very same feeling that we have. Things are not as they're supposed to be. And get ready, he says, be prepared. God is about to begin to make all things new through Jesus. And with all the voices shouting at us right now, uh, telling us, this is how you change, this is how you can be transformed, this is how you make your country better or great, do you, do you hear the voices? Just, you got to do this, you got to get in the gym, you got to stop eating that, you got to go, 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 you got to vote for the right person. With all those voices telling us how to change and how to be transformed and how to make things new, Luke is going to tell us here there's another voice we should listen to. The word of the Lord, which comes in two ways in this passage. First, it comes through the voice of one crying in the wilderness, John the baptizer. And then it'll come through a voice that came from heaven, from God himself. So, for our remaining time, let's listen to what God has to say through those two voices and consider how to respond to them. But first of all, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came through the voice of John the baptizer. I mentioned to you that uh, John is the last of the Old, Te Old Testament prophets. And as you read and study the Old Testament prophets, you'll see there's two themes throughout the prophets. The theme of judgment against God's people for not keeping his covenant. So the, the prophets are like prosecuting attorneys who come with God's covenant and come to his people and say, you deserve to be judged for failing to stay in covenant with him. But the other theme that's throughout all the prophets is the theme of hope. That God knows this about his people and God is going to do something about it himself um, to make them new. And so John comes here with the same two themes, judgment and hope. Look at verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John is going to proclaim a coming judgment that requires repentance but he's also proclaiming a coming hope for the forgiveness of sins, all right? John's been sent by God to say, that feeling you have that something, something in the world needs to change, uh, that feeling you have that something 
in you needs to change, it's real. Pay attention to it. It's right. Pay attention to it. Something is wrong. Something is broken. Something is sinful and requires forgiveness. Look at verse 4. So uh, John is the one that Isaiah predicted would come before the Messiah would come. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then he describes very uh, creatively what it looks like to prepare that way and how that path is going to be made straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. Uh, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John is coming to proclaim that something needs saving. Things are not as they're supposed to be. People are not as they're supposed to be. People and the world need saving. And all flesh, every kind of person needs to be prepared to see what God will do to rescue redeem and reconcile and restore and renew his world. John is here to prepare, prepare us for what God will do to save his world. But then, through John, the Lord will go on to say that part of what he must do to rescue and restore his ruined world is to judge the sin that caused its ruin. This has to happen first. And God will do this by sending the one that he promised would crush that serpent. The Messiah who would come and judge and destroy all of the enemies of God and his people. He will come and destroy Satan and sin and suffering and death. And John describes that Messiah down in verse 17 when he says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So you can picture this pitchfork that the, that the farmer has, and he digs into a, a pile of wheat and on the threshing floor, and he shakes it so that the chaff blows in the wind and blows away. And what remains is the good, wholesome wheat that he's after. That is what Jesus, that is what the Messiah is coming to do. And the chaff and the wheat are people. He is coming to clear his threshing floor, gather the wheat into his barn, but there will be those who will be burned in unquenchable fire. That's what he's coming to do as part of his plan to make all things new. And of course... This is the one, the Messiah, that God's people have been waiting for, the one who, this one who will come to burn up his enemies. Um, and you can, you can imagine that the people listening to John are thinking, yeah, that's right, he's coming to burn up our enemies. But surprise, surprise, John's message is pointing the finger of judgment right at them. Verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, 
Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, this is not a great church growth strategy, is it? Can you imagine if every Sunday morning I looked at maybe uh, not only you, but our visitors and said, welcome to Mount Fellowship, you brood of vipers. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. What, What John is saying here is, you are sons of the serpent. They all know the story of the serpent who slithered into the garden and helped start the whole mess that the world is in. And he's saying, you're in league with him you brood of vipers. He goes on, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, don't rely on your resume, folks. Even the children of Abraham have to repent of their sin. He goes on in verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What he's saying here is don't simply repent of the sins that people can see hanging on the tree of your life. Repent all the way down to the root because that's where Jesus is going to lay his axe at your heart. John is saying, this baptism is not about you doing some outward religious thing to get right with God or to look like you're right with God. It's actually a picture. The baptism, this washing that I'm doing is a picture of the inward washing and cleansing and renewal that God must do in you that will then result in a new outward life too, that will result in fruit that keeps, that is in line with your repentance. And so now these folks realize it's not just the world that needs to change. It's just not those other, it's not just those other sinners over there that need to change. God's come to tell me that I need to change. And in verses 10 to 14, John is going to speak to the crowds, to tax collectors, and to soldiers. Why these three categories? He's saying, all of you, yes, every person from every walk of life needs to repent, needs to change. Let's go to verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has Food is to do likewise. So be generous. Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Because what tax collectors did is uh, they were typically Jewish people who worked for the Roman government. The Roman government required that they collect a certain amount of tax But in order to make a little cash for themselves on the side, they would require more than Rome required from their own people. 
uh, from their own Jewish brothers and sisters. And then they would pocket the extra for themselves. And so he's saying, be honest. Collect no more than you're authorized to. And then the soldiers also asked him, and, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So to the crowds, he said, be generous. To the tax collectors, he said, be honest. To the soldiers, he said, be content and stop using your power to take from others to satisfy yourself. All of this is a picture of him saying, you must change your me-first heart into a others-first heart, a you-first heart. Not only that, when he says, be content, that's a you-first God heart that says, I'm content with whatever you choose to give me, God. I'm not going to try to get it from other people. And so, what John is saying is that making all things new begins with individual hearts. He doesn't tell them to change their world. Do you notice that? He tells them their hearts have to change. And then, John is not saying that they can just change their outward behaviors and everything will be better. These are not, he's not giving them new you resolutions, okay? And here's, here's why I think that. Because when he tells the soldiers, be content with what you have, he could have actually said that in each of these cases. To the crowds, be generous to others because you're content with what you have. You're not hanging on to it. Um... The tax collectors, stop taking more than you're allowed to take from people. Be content with what you have. And then to the soldiers, quit trying to um, use force and your power to extort from others. Be content. He's saying that this is not just something you can flip a switch and make a resolution change. It requires a change of heart. This will require a radical repentance. Radical means to the root. That's why he used the illustration of the tree. This is going to require a radical repentance. And repentance is a change of mind that turns from itself to the Savior. So he sets the bar all the way at the heart. You see, the whole theme of the Old Testament prophets was, you and the world are so ruined by sin that God himself is going to have to come and make a new creation that starts by giving you new hearts. And he's going to do this by sending his Messiah, his Christ. And when Christ comes, he will make all things new, beginning with his own people. So look at verse 15. 
as the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. It's as if uh, John, in his, his preaching of repentance, has rekindled that longing for the Christ by calling them to repent. John answered them all, saying, I baptize, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's rekindling that longing for the Christ, so much so that they think, well, maybe you're, are you the Christ? And he says, no, not me, not me. I'm here to point you to him. Friends, you and I won't long for Jesus to save us and forgive us if we don't think we need saving and forgiving. So friends, as we start this new year together, let's, let's let that need for change that we feel, let's let it drive us not to resolve to be better, but let it drive us to repentance. Let your desire for transformation drive you to Jesus. Because it's through repentance and faith in Jesus, who, who comes to redeem and reconcile sinners, that's how true transformation takes place. He's come to make all things new, but that starts with you, and it starts with me. So I want to ask you, can you think of anything that he might put his finger on to say, you need to repent about this. You need to change your mind about this in your life. You need to change your ways about this in your life. I don't know what that might be. I, I, could, I could tell you that he, well, first of all, I wasn't looking real forward to coming back and this being the first sermon I get to preach. <laughs> but mainly because I wasn't looking forward to having to think, because I really try really hard to apply it to myself before I preach it to you. And I, it's just no fun to think about repenting sometimes. But I did. <laughs> and he, I, I, I don't have time to go into uh, what he called me to repent of. But he said, your heart has to change about the way you see things about yourself and about your circumstances. And so he, he did. And you know what? Repentance is a gift. It's really good. It's really sweet. You've probably heard me say before that Jack Miller was famous for saying, cheer up, you're worse than you think. And he would follow that with, Cheer up. God's grace is greater than you can imagine. 
And we won't know how great that grace is until we understand and confront how great our need for it is. So I invite you to cheer up and look and see what do you need, what is he calling you to repent of? And I think what John is trying to say to us here is, if you don't think you have anything, any need, and if you think you can rest on being a son of Abraham or a son or daughter of the church, look, look, and don't resist it. Uh, embrace repentance. So I know we don't like hear preachers telling us repent. I don't like necessarily to preach it because I know how much I need to do it. No one likes to be told they're sinners and that they need to repent. Look at verse 18. First of all, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but I kind of chuckle when I read this verse. Good news? Really? Really? All I've heard is bad news, John. Repentance is good news? Yeah. Hang on, and we'll see why in a minute. Verse 19. People don't like to be told to repent, right? Be told they're sinners. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife. There's a lot packed into that. Herod, Antipas, um, decided that he uh, loved his sister-in-law, his brother's wife. And so he made arrangements for her to become his wife. I mean, it was just all messed up, and there's more to that story. But uh, John, and, and there are other evil things that Herod did. And John, apparently, not only preached this message at the riverside, but apparently spoke truth to power, as we like to say, and he told Herod exactly what he needed to repent of. Herod didn't like it, and Herod put him in prison. No one likes to have their sins exposed. No one likes to be told they should repent. I'm asking you and me, let's not be that person this morning or ever. Let's not be like Herod and try to shut up or shut out the voice that's telling us to repent this morning because it's the voice of God. Because he knows what's on the other side of repentance for you. It's the renewal that you've been longing for. Keep listening. There's good news. John came as the voice of judgment exposing the change that we all need most, a change of heart toward God. He came calling us to repent and turn away from our sin to our Savior. Now we come to hear the voice that came from heaven, the voice of God himself, the voice of hope. Look at verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also, uh, also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Now you should all be asking a question at this point. After hearing that John was preaching 
a baptism of repentance, you should all be asking, why was Jesus baptized? What did he have to repent of? Nothing. Why was Jesus baptized? We know from one of the other gospel writers that when Jesus came to be baptized, even John said, wait a minute, who am I to baptize you? You should be baptizing me. And Jesus told him, we must do this to fulfill all righteousness. And what, what that means is briefly, and I'm going to look more at this, these verses next week, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on these verses, but this is what we need to see right here for this. Jesus was baptized not for his own sins, not to repent of his own sins, but he was baptized in our place to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill God's plan for Jesus to become our substitute. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. He knew no sin, but for our sake God made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All the judgment that God promised to bring on sin and sinners fell on Jesus for you and for me. That's why he was baptized. He was doing the very thing that we need to do for ourselves. He did it in our place. And now, as Paul says in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There it is. There's the newness that you're all looking for, that I'm looking for every year. It's only found on the other side of repentance. It's only found as we put our faith in the one who repented in our place when he didn't have to, the one who died and carried and bore the sins and the judgment for those sins that belong to us and not to him so that we never have to. In him, we are new creations. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So it's, I mean, make resolutions if you want to, but what we need more than New Year's resolutions is New Year's repentance, which leads to a new faith in Jesus, trusting him to be the one who makes us new creations. Um, the first of the 95 theses that Martin Luther posted on the church door on October 31st, 1517, said this, it's on the front of your bulletin, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. And so I want to invite myself and you to continue to repent. Anytime you think, boy, I wish I was different in this way or this way, turn that into repentance. Say, Lord, what is going on in my heart at the very root 
where am I not content with what you've given me and who you've made me that makes me want to try to grab it from other people? Um, Mountain Fellowship, let's enjoy repentance, shall we? Because on the other side of that is Jesus, who came to make us new. Father, I offer that to you and to your people, and I trust that you will use it to encourage us uh, not to uh, be discouraged, but be encouraged that you, more than we, want us to be new. And you are the only one who's actually done what needed to be done to make us new. And so, um, grant us, as the scriptures say, the grace of repentance. Grant us the grace of repentance so that we might know the joy of our salvation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.